Morning, Redeemer Georgetown. I am so excited to be here with you this morning. It is a special thing to be invited by Pastor Robert. Uh, you all likely know this by now, but your pastor, Robert Livingston, is one of the most encouraging, supportive, life-giving men alive. I actually believe that. I think he's in the top 10 of, of men alive. He picked up my wife and I from the airport uh, yesterday, met us in his, in his Tesla. I don't know if you've had a chance to ride in it yet, but uh, he introduced us to the International Speedway known as I-35, punched that Tesla and got it up to, I don't know, close to triple digits, it felt like, uh, to the uninitiated perhaps. And then he made me question all of my previous knowledge about the inner workings of my gastrointestinal system by using the computer-aided whoopee cushion in the car. Perhaps not the best examples of his encouraging, life-giving spirit, but I do want to just let me for a moment tell you a little bit about uh, my history with Robert because we go back now, I think close to about 15 years. Um, Robert and I met in Chicago, Chicago land, uh, because we were both planting churches there. And we actually planted our churches in Chicago on the exact same day, Easter of 2010. Robert planted the Source Church in the Chicago suburbs. I planted a church called the Painted Door in the city center of Chicago. And they were very different kinds of churches. They had different people groups that they were seeking to resonate with and reach. Robert, as I said, was in the suburbs. I was in the city center. And we were very different kinds of pastors, had different pastoral personalities. Um, Robert is, as you know, the consummate shepherd, right? He is there with you in those moments. You know that he has prayed for you. You know that he has thought about you. That's the heartbeat of his soul. I tend to be a little bit more of the contrarian, disruptive, prophet. You may not always know that I care about you. I do care about you. I just don't know how to express it. I think there's some dad stuff going on there. Some of you may be able to relate. But nevertheless, Robert and I became fast friends. He immediately began to welcome me into his life and into his story. He honored me, had me out to teach at his church. And his friendship, his support, his love mattered immensely uh, over the course of my 10 years of pastoring in Chicago. Pastoring in a city, church planting in a city is hard work, and it's important that you know that there are brothers that are with you in spirit and prayer and truth and helping you to hold the line of what it means to minister the gospel in a culture that sometimes is hostile to it. Uh, and so Robert's support throughout that decade was crucial, and it became especially crucial toward the end of that time because after 10 years of leading a church in Chicago, our beautiful little dream suddenly collapsed. We'd had a series of leadership conflicts that kept escalating over the course of the last year of the church, and we finally made the very difficult decision with the help of Acts 29 leadership to simply close our doors finally. Uh, and with that, our dream for a gospel-centered church in Chicago died. Uh, I had been a 
journalist prior to being a church planner. I was living an undisrupted life in the wonderful city of Seattle. I belonged to a church. I was married. We were starting a family. I owned a home. Uh, but it just so happened, as you know, nothing just so happens, but it just so happened that the associate director of the Acts 29 Church Planting Network was a member in the small group that I led uh, at my local church in Seattle. Um, and after being a part of that group for some time, he said to me, Mark, I meet with and talk with church planters all day long, and you are a church planter. So he disrupted my life significantly. Two years of church planter training later, we sold our house, we quit our jobs. I think I was the only one employed. I quit my job. Uh, and we got in the minivan, our two daughters, my pregnant wife, uh, and we drove to Chicago and started rubbing sticks together, hoping to make a fire. We knew no one in Chicago. We went all in on our dream to plant a church there. So when it collapsed, it was, it was devastating, and we were more than a little lost. We had no idea what we were going to do next. We didn't know what God was up to in this. Why had this happened? I was confused. I was hurting. It was the greatest failure of my life. And I didn't know how to process that. And Robert's support and friendship during that time, among other brothers in our network and in our city, were a lifeline to me. Uh, Robert actually reached out. And in the wake of our church closing, um, he recognized that my vocational calendar was free. And so he said to me, Mark, I think God may be calling me to plant again. Would you consider coming to take over and lead the Source Church in the Chicago suburbs? Uh, I knew at that time, for all the confusion that was going on in my soul, the one thing I was sure of <clears throat> was that it was not the right time for me to take on another lead pastor role, and so I, I declined. Uh, but Robert's support, his belief in me at a time when I was really doubting my own call, doubting my own sense of who I was or what I was meant to do with this life and love that God had put in my heart, uh, it meant the world to me. And Robert said, okay, well, fine, you're not going to pastor the source. At least come and preach to us. And so I did that. We have, my family had moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan by then, but I happily got in the car, drove the three hours over to uh, the Chicago suburbs, Plainfield is where they were meeting at that time, and I preached a message, this is four years ago now, on where is God in the death of our dreams? And I shared something during that message that I want to share with you. It's something that I wrote on the last day that we had keys to our building, our church building in Chicago. I got up that morning very early, I think in the three o'clock hour, something like that. Uh, I got dressed and I walked, the 10 minute walk it was, over to our church building. We'd be giving up the keys later that day. Uh, and I just sat on this rug that we had laid out on the ground in front of our pulpit uh, and wave upon wave of grief just came crashing in over me. A grief over my failures as a leader, grief over just the tremendous loss that we were experiencing. Uh, this community that had formed around us from nothing 
and over the course of 10 years have become quite precious to us. It was a wonderful and wonderfully dysfunctional church, I will say that, which is often the case in church plants. But it was this eclectic mix of people that you never would have expected to be together that had somehow become one in the tumbler of God's grace. And I wrote this that morning as I was sitting there on the sanctuary floor. Lord, you are the one who wounds us. We wrestle with men and feel the jabs of malice and disdain. But these flesh wounds provide nothing but pain until we see that we are wrestling with you. Until we see that you are the one who leaves indelible wounds so tenderly so lovingly you mark us and we are renamed reshaped we are made weaker and made to limp and yet in this we are made whole i feel the flesh wounds lord but i know in my heart it is you who is wounding me and that your tenderness and your love are in this thing so i will not fight i will not resist when Robert asked me to come preach here today, he asked if I would bring a sort of follow-up to that message from four years ago. Four years ago, I was preaching on where is God in the death of our dreams. Today, I want us to consider where is God in the aftermath of the death of our dreams? What is God up to after our dreams have collapsed before us. That's where I lived, of course, for the past four years. It's where I'm currently living. I'm living in the aftermath of the death of my dreams, my family's dreams. That's where our family has been living. There is a familiar passage, if you've grown up in church, in the book of Ephesians. We read it just a moment ago. I want to read it to you, where the Apostle Paul lists the various gifts that God gives to ministers in order to equip the saints, in order to equip the people of the church for the work of the ministry. But as I read this passage to you, I want you to pay special, careful attention to the latter half of the passage, specifically the last little refrain of the passage, wherein the Apostle Paul speaks to the work of God in the world. Okay, he's giving all these ministers, he's giving all these gifts to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for something. So that something. Okay, as I read it, I want you to listen carefully to that vision for God's work in the world. We read this in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, listen, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Did you hear it? Until we all attain to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, the English Standard Version is, a, is sort of a thought for, excuse me, word-for-word word translation, so it can be a little bit awkward at times. 
So I want to read it to you in a, in a couple of other translations as well. The NIV translates this this way, until we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The New Limbig translation says this, until we mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. And then perhaps my favorite, maybe yours, Eugene Peterson's wonderful gift, The Message Bible, says, until we're all fully mature adults, fully developed within and without, fully alive in Christ. That is a vision for God's work in the world, that we would be fully alive in Christ, that God would use his church to raise us up into the full measure of who Jesus is, not to become sort of carbon copies that don't quite measure up. No, just the opposite, that we would be matured up into the full measure of who Christ is, that within us and without us, what we do and who we are would live up to the standard of who Christ is, and by extension then, we would be fully alive people. Let me ask you, are you fully alive? Or do you know someone fully alive? What does that even mean? What would that even look like to be a fully alive person? Well, we know in one sense that it would look like Jesus, right? Jesus is fully alive. But what would it look like in the particulars of your personality? What would your personality be if you were fully alive? How would it shift? How would it change? Would it change? What color would it be? What kind of a mother would you be if you were fully alive? What kind of father, what kind of husband or wife or brother or sister or son or daughter or employee or boss? What would you be like when you were doing laundry, if you were fully alive? What would you be like when you were playing cards, if you were fully alive? Would these things change? Would they be transformed? In the final months of The Painted Door, when I was trying everything that I knew to pull our church up out of this nosedive that we were in, I had the opportunity to do a full day intensive with a Christian therapist and a spiritual director. This was a husband and wife team. I was wanting to grow as a leader, right? Wanting to understand the ways that I was falling short and perhaps outgrow our church's dysfunction. Could I get to a place where I could actually lead us through this and save this wonderful community? And this couple over the course of this day-long intensive, they took me on a deep dive into my story, my upbringing, my successes, my failures, my conversion to Christianity at the age of 19. And as I shared these memories uh, of people and moments, sort of formative people and moments throughout my story, Nancy, the wife, the spiritual director in the room, 
She kept asking me this question. Right as I was in the middle of sharing a very important and poignant memory, she would say, Mark, what are you feeling? And invariably, I would answer her as though she had asked me a very different question. Namely, what are you thinking? I hear my wife chuckling. She has to live with me, right? <laughs> my little analyzer brain would always be giving her my thoughts instead of my feelings. It was like I had no access to what I was feeling. I had no access to what I was feeling when I experienced those particular memories. And so after this had happened a number of times, Nancy pulled out a visual aid, something called a feelings wheel. Perhaps you're familiar with it. It's just a card that has a list of just about every word that describes a human emotion on it. And she said, okay, the next time I ask that question, you don't get to speak. You just point. You just point to what you were feeling. We're going to force you to say a feelings word one way or the other. Uh, and at this moment, we happened to be talking about my childhood, and we were share I was sharing a moment when I was nine. And a community that my family had been very much involved in, closely connected to, collapsed when I was nine. And I lost a lot of friends. And I was forced to move schools and go to a whole new community. And Nancy asked me, what are you feeling? And she handed me the feelings wheel. And I took that little cardboard wheel. And I started scanning all the words. And my analyzer brain began to ask this question, what would a nine-year-old be feeling at a moment like that? And I thought, I, aha, I got it. Confused. And I pointed to confused and looked up at Nancy. And she looked at me in the eye and she said, Mark, you just look so sad. And I just burst into tears. You know, just heaving sobs coming out of me. You know. What was happening in that moment? Well, Nancy had given me permission to actually feel what my little nine-year-old self had never had permission to feel. Been too busy trying to survive. Too busy trying to make sense of it. Too busy trying to find new friends, find a new community, find a place of safety. She was giving me permission to feel something that I hadn't had permission to feel for the 30 years since that moment. She was inviting me to stop being the analyzer of my story, to stop always asking, what should I feel right now? Who should I be in this moment? And instead, to step right into the moment, to actually be present to my own life, and to feel the human feelings that are produced by the contours and textures of our story. She was inviting me to show up, maybe for the first time ever, to feel it all. Over the course of our lives, you who are a little older, you know this, over the course of our lives, there are pivot points. There are moments where suddenly, it seems instantaneous, it's probably not, but it seems instantaneous, 
we pivot and we begin to move a different direction. We don't often know it when it's happening. It takes a bit of distance from that pivot point. But when we look back with a little bit of perspective, we say, right there, I started to go an entirely different direction. A new category of being in the world opened up to me. Okay. This was one of those moments for me. I was 39 years old. And this whole new category of being, like I said, opened up to me. There is sorrow and anger and fear and hope and excitement and tenderness all lodged in my body, shaped and forged in the contours of my life. And these are things that are a part of me. These are things that actually make up who I am. And I won't be able to know myself. I won't even be living in my life until I begin to unearth these things. In fact, until I begin to live unearthed, until I begin to live dug up, to live vulnerably, to live sensitively, to be human, to be present in my own life. I'm tremendously thankful that God provided that pivot point to me immediately preceding the ultimate demise of our church. Because when it happened, when this profound, sorrowful, hard thing happened, I was able to live in it. I was able to be present to it far more than I had ever been to any previous moment in my life to that point. And I was able to see what was happening. I was able to feel what was happening. I was able to be, I believe, shaped by what was happening as it was happening far more than I would have been otherwise. Now hear me in this, it was incredibly painful, but the pain wasn't for nothing. It was forging things in me, and it still is. What I wrote on that final morning sitting on the floor of our church sanctuary, I was more present to the work of God in that moment than I'd ever been in my life previously. I was hearing him. I was seeing him. I was knowing him. The most famous sermon that Jesus gave during his earthly ministry, I'm sure you're familiar with it if you've been in church for some amount of time, he gave this sermon sitting on a mountainside. The scriptures tell us that he sat down, went up on a mountain, sat down, opened his mouth, and he began to speak. And his opening refrain of the sermon we read in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now that's an opening. That is actually a stunning shock and awe statement. We're familiar enough with it that we may not be shocked or awed. But that statement flips the entire world upside down. Who does the kingdom of heaven belong to? To whom is it given the right to be friends with God, to live life with God? The confident, those of good reputation, those who have shown themselves worthy? No. The poor in spirit, people who know that their hands are empty, 
People who know that they bring nothing to the table. To these, the kingdom of God is given. These are vulnerable people, weak people. It's a statement that forces us to reconsider every assumption we've made about the objective of our lives. What am I doing here? If the kingdom of heaven is given to the poor in spirit, isn't everything I'm doing here about being not poor in spirit? Isn't it the whole point of life to grow in confidence and power? Jesus stops us in our tracks. It's also a statement, I believe, that introduces a new path. A new path for us to walk on. A new way of being human. This path toward attaining the fullness of the measure of Christ. That's what Jesus is doing as he teaches the Sermon on the Mount. This is the way. This is the way to become fully alive. And step one, poverty of spirit. You say, well, how how do I do that? How do I do poverty of spirit? Well, I think that actually the shape and particulars of your story has a lot to do with that. I don't think we pursue poverty of spirit. I think our life introduces us to it, or at least invites us to it. Poverty of spirit is born out of those moments in our lives when our dreams were crushed. That's actually where it's born. And this isn't a linear path. It's not as though our dreams are crushed one time and suddenly we have all poverty of spirit. No, broken dreams come to us at different times and in different shapes, different degrees, at different ages. And as they come to us, we're given a choice. We're put at a fork in the road. How much poverty of spirit will I receive from this broken dream? Or will I repress that? Will I push past that? Will I just insist on being who I still am? Or will I be changed? Will I be marked by it? I always think of this opening line of the Sermon on the Mount as something akin to step one in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, if you're familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, admitting that we are powerless is step one. Right? That's what's happening here. The poor in spirit, admitting that we are powerless. It's where the journey to true life begins. And ironically, the journey to true power starts by admitting that we have none. And then Jesus piles on in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Something profound happens in a human heart when it breaks. It's hard to describe, it's hard to know exactly what that is, but something profound happens when it breaks, when grief floods in. He says, those who mourn will be comforted. Those who go all the way down to rock bottom will be lifted. Okay, here the path begins to take an upward trajectory. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. For they will be comforted. Everything in the kingdom of God is shaped like death and resurrection. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek, the humbled ones, the ones who don't even use the power that they have, what little power they have for their own gain. They lay it aside. They're never trying to turn things to themselves. These are the ones who are going to rule. The ones who don't rule. 
They're going to inherit the earth. The earth will be given to them, and they will reign with Christ. They will own the world. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The hunger for goodness in yourself and in the world is not the same thing as a hunger for looking good to yourself and to the world. A true hunger to be transformed, to be made into a just person, just righteous people often are despised by the world. They often have to give up the desire to be thought well of in the world or even to have a positive self-image at times because true goodness in you, it's not impressed with itself. People who are truly righteous, they're not looking at themselves. They're too concerned with remaining attached, remaining connected to the source of all that goodness. Fill me again, Lord. It comes from you. It doesn't come from me. So they're dependent on him. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. As a person steps into more and more true life, now ministry begins to pour out of them. Love and grace pour out from them. They're ministers of mercy. They're makers of peace. Robert said it last night at dinner. They're friends of God. Of course, new measures of spirit, poverty, and mourning still come path is not linear. Life will continue to introduce you to broken dream after broken dream after broken dream, but these things now manifest more quickly and naturally into greater love. Jesus ends these beatitudes this way in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Suffering that may have once seemed meaningless now is an opportunity to participate in the very life of Christ. You're walking in his footsteps after him. And there's this tremendous revelation, I believe, here, because Jesus offers or promises to those who are persecuted in the wake of Jesus' persecution that the kingdom of God will be theirs, the kingdom of heaven will be theirs. This is the same offer that he said at the beginning to the poor in spirit. As you enter the path, you are given all things. You're given all things, and the kingdom just begins to manifest in you and manifest in you and manifest in you. You begin to take hold of more and more of it, and at the end you realize, I've always had it all. God has been leading me into something to realize something that he has already given. Many of you in this church, I don't know many of you or any of you well, but in talking to Pastor Robert, it became clear to me that many of you have figured some things out about life. Many of you are, are living well in various ways, in your families, in your friendships, in your finances. Many of you are sincere, honest, hardworking people. You care for your families. You love God. Keisha and I had dinner with Robert and Monica last night, and they were just raving about you. They're saying, you're not going to believe how wonderful our people are. 
And I am so grateful for that because it's a tremendous blessing to my friends. So keep being wonderful. What I want, my hope for you, is that you would get a vision for more. That you'd get a vision for the rest of your life that would say, there's more. There's more of God. There's a fuller kind of life. There's the full measure of the stature of Christ. And to be excited about the days ahead of you. Because God didn't make us to live the middle-class dream, right? As the late Tim Keller said, he didn't make us to have a middle-class spirit. He made us to reign with Christ. He made us to grow up into such rich and full personhood that we could enter into the divine dance with him into the kind of personhood that is manifest in our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He made us to enter into that communion. He made us to grow up into a place of maturity that we can run with Him, that we can reign with Him, that we can have full fellowship with Him, that we could know God and be known by God, that our hearts would be so cracked open, so dug up, so vulnerable that love would just freely flow in and out of us just as it does the heart of the Father. Yes, we'd be susceptible to being hurt. The Holy Spirit is grieved, but we would be fully alive. That is what God made us for. What would it look like in your life if you could parent without fear? What would it look like if you believed that there was healing in your touch, in your words, in your presence, not as a stroke to your ego, but because God had grown you up into that, that you would be an agent and minister of kindness and grace and healing everywhere you went in the world, that you'd be living Christ's life after him. Can you see that? Do you want that? After that uh, pivotal moment with Nancy, I said, I got to meet with a spiritual director more often. This is good stuff. And so I began meeting with a spiritual director uh, every week at that time. Uh, and I still meet with that same man four years later. It's been a tremendous gift to me. And I remember Bill was his name, is his name, saying to me, or saying in our first meeting, um, these very poignant words. I was there, I was meeting with him, I was disoriented. What is this whole new category of being? And I said, I'm 39 years old, and I'm just now discovering these deep waters in me, this deep reservoir of personhood. What is this? And why did it take so long? And Bill, who's a spiritual director and has been for many years, he looked me in the face and said, Mark, you are right on time. I came to find out that 
Just about all of the models of spiritual formation, those developed by the ancient church fathers, those developed by modern Christian, Christian psychologists, they all include in them this concept of the wall. The wall is something that invariably happens to every person somewhere in the middle of their development as a person, in the middle of their spiritual life. It doesn't have to be a Christian spiritual life. Everyone has a spiritual life, and the wall shows up somewhere in the middle. Okay, the wall is a collision with something that forbids you to go on doing life the way you were doing it before. Right? We all figure out how to do life well enough for a season at a time, and it works for us for a while, and then we hit the wall. Okay? This could be tragedy, it could be loss of some kind, it could be a divorce, it could be an illness, it could be the closure of a church. Something that just says, nope, time to change. And we all hit that wall somewhere in the middle of our spiritual lives. For some of you, that wall is coming. Sorry. <laughs> For some of you, you're right in the middle of the collision. I feel that with you. For a precious few of you, it may be in the rearview mirror. But the temptation for all of us when we hit the wall is to bounce backwards, right? I hit the wall that says, no, you cannot go on that way. And I just bounce backwards and find a new avenue to retain the status quo. No, I'm not gonna change. I'm not gonna learn the lessons that the wall is demanding that I learn. I'm just gonna start over with a new paradigm and walk through the exact same way of being in a new category. I was gonna get a new wife, I'm gonna get a new religion, I'm gonna get a new hobby, I'm gonna adopt health and wellness, whatever it is. And we fail to learn what the wall is offering. I know that temptation very well. There have been many days since the closing of our church in Chicago when I could barely breathe, when all I wanted was just to go back to what I was in my 20s and 30s. Back when life made a lot more sense. Back when it was so easy for me to just live in my head and vacate my life and not have to feel everything that was happening in my story. That's a much harder way of being. And on a lot of days, to be honest, I do that. But I have found I'm not able to stay there for long. This pivot moment in my life, it persists. It demands that I keep moving forward, that I keep living in the wall. That's where I live now. I'm not beyond it. I'm in the middle of it. God is leading me somewhere. And I will not fight. I will not resist. Will you? Are you? Thornton Wilder, he's an American playwright, novelist. Uh, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his novel, The Bridge of San Luis Rey. He won a couple Pulitzers for plays. He's prolific, 20th century playwright. He wrote a small little play, a lesser known play that 
uh, has a quote in it that I wanted to read, and so I thought, I'm going to find out what this play is about so I can give you some context and then read you the quote. The play is called The Angel That Troubled the Waters. Uh, and in this play, Wilder imagines that great scene in John's Gospel, chapter 5, where all of the lame and infirmed of Jerusalem are sitting next to the pool of Bethesda. And you know the story in John 5, Jesus comes and heals a man waiting there, but they're waiting there at the pool of Bethesda because the understanding is that this is a miraculous pool and when the waters are stirred in this pool, all those who are sick and infirmed would be able to jump in and be healed. And so while there's imagining this scene in his play, Jesus isn't there in this particular reimagining. Instead, he places there what appears to be a healthy doctor. So there's the lame, there's the infirmed, and there's a healthy doctor. And the healthy doctor has no visible malady, unlike everyone else who's sitting by the pool. And yet he's there looking for healing because his condition is internal. We don't know what that is exactly. All we learn over the course of the play is that this doctor wants to go back. He wants to go back to earlier in his practice, when life was simple, when it made sense, when he was successful. And something has happened over the course of his life that has wounded him internally in some way. And he wants to be healed of that wound so that he can backtrack. And the angel who comes to the pool to stir the waters, to grant healing to those who gather by, he has words of correction for this doctor, words of rebuke for this doctor. First, the angel forbids the doctor from entering the pool. He says, when I stir the waters, you are not to get into them. And then the angel says this to the doctor, and I believe these are the words of God to us. Without your wounds, where would your power be? It is your melancholy that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men and women. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children of this earth as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love's service, only wounded soldiers can serve. These are holy words, of course. They're much like, they echo the words of God to the Apostle Paul. My power is made perfect in your weakness. This is what God is up to in the aftermath of our broken dreams. He's perfecting his power by making us into the kind of people fully alive enough to bear it, fully alive enough to manifest it, fully alive enough to embody the upside-down revelations that he gave us in the Sermon on the Mount, to be upside-down people in a right-side-up world, to be fully alive people among the walking dead. So where are you on this path to wholeness? Some of you haven't started. Some of you are clutching your middle-class spirit. God is inviting you today. Unclench your hands. Unclench your body. 
and slump into him. Slump into the all-encompassing grace of God. Others of you, you're on your way. You're heading toward the wall or you're in the collision now. I want to just give you two questions to ponder for the week. You know, maybe find a quiet time, maybe in the morning or the evening, something to write with. And just reflect on what is the hardest or most painful thing that you are facing in your life today? Don't answer it quickly. Because sometimes the surface things come to mind first. What is the hardest or most painful thing that you are facing in your life today? And then the second question, what would it look like to give up all of your worst case scenario thinking? I know you do that. <laughs> to give up all your worst case scenario thinking and to begin to expect that divine goodness will reveal itself in all things, even this thing. What would that look like? What would you have to do in order to begin to think that way? In order to begin to train your heart to think that way? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You shall be comforted and God will make you fully alive. I want to invite you to pray with me now. And as we pray, I want you to be considering where are the parts in my heart that are resistant? Where am I not wanting to go that God is saying, go there? Okay. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you on your insistence in our lives. You are so faithful. You come for us. You come take hold of us and you lead us into the things that we would not move toward on our own. We thank you for even the hardest things of our lives because when they are placed in your hands, good comes of it. Lord, send your spirit now. Touch those places in our soul that we have built a shield around. The things that we're most guarded over. We know that you are a gentle God, that you are a kind God, that your intentions are full of love. So break us down. And take us to where you mean for us to go. Make us alive. Amen.